0: With you, if you would like to turn to the same section of scripture that we read last week together, that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, Escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Last Wednesday night, together, we looked at one of the people mentioned in that passage of scripture as we considered what it might mean to grow in hope and in trust of God. And we explored the life of Gideon. Tonight I want to return to this passage of scripture as our launching pad to reflect on another character. This time, the life of a man called Samson. And what he might teach us about not growing in hope, but growing in holiness and in consecration. And those two words, the minute you use them, holiness and consecration, when you are a preacher, if you look out at a congregation that are listening to you and you say, I'd like to talk to you about holiness, you can almost see the room thinking, oh no. And I think that perhaps is indicative of the fact that we struggle to understand holiness, but also many of us feel as if we feel in it. And that is probably true. The struggle to live lives that are set apart, which is what the word holy means, is something that impacts all of us. But I do think it's important in our day and our generation and in our church family, not particularly because we are lost in some sense of unholiness, but I think it's important in our day and generation and in this stage of our church's life that we think about what it means to be consecrated to God and what it means to be set apart for Him. And in many ways, I think the story of Samson is a story that challenges what happens to us when we live lives that are not directed toward God's purposes and plans, but also gives us glimmers of what it means to find our way back to those purposes and what that might mean for us. Holiness is an unpopular idea. People would much rather talk about the miraculous Or about the presence of God. Or about the sudden and instantaneous instantaneous ways in which God moves in our lives. But it strikes me that at the very heart of Christian faith is a call to be set apart for God. In the book of Hebrews that I read to you at the beginning tonight. We read very clearly in chapter 12 verse 14. Without holiness no one will see the Lord. So the challenge is there in black and white for us. And it's a challenge that we we need to to grapple with. All you need to do is take a cursory glance at the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, but throughout it, to see how seriously God takes this. Again and again, for example, in the book of Leviticus, he calls his people to holiness. Normally with this kind of um, paradigm or this kind of uh, phraseology, be holy because I'm holy. I'm calling you to holiness because I am a holy God. Or walk in holiness because I, the Lord, your God, am a holy God. You read that in the following verses. Leviticus 11, verse 44 and verse 45. Leviticus 19, verse 2. Leviticus 20, verse 7. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Leviticus 21, verse 8. Leviticus 22, verse 32. And then when God offers promises to his people when they're in captivity or when they're in dire straits, and he promises to deliver them in Isaiah 43, verse 3, or in Isaiah 48, verse 17, he links his capacity to rescue them to his holiness. I, the Lord, am holy. I will rescue you. What is the connection between God's holiness and his capacity to rescue. And if holiness is so fundamentally important, why is it so important? What is it about a holy life that is liberating? What is it about a life that is consecrated that is better than a life that isn't? I wonder if you ever thought about the pragmatic implications of holiness. Not simply reading the scriptures and saying, well, God says I've got to be holy, therefore I've got to be holy. And I wonder whether one of the reasons that many of us struggle with holiness is because we don't really understand why it's important. We don't really understand what the connection with holiness and effective living is. We get the worship side of it. God asks us to be holy, and therefore we want to be holy. God calls us to be holy or consecrated, and therefore we want to be consecrated. But what's the direct impact of holiness in your life? Let me ask that another way. If you're not living a holy life, what's the difference between you and someone who is? Visibly, physically, spiritually, relationally. What's the difference? I think one of the reasons that holiness has fallen out of fashion for many preachers and many churches is because we don't really connect it into effective Christian living. We understand it as a subject. I think sometimes the same is true of worship, actually. We understand it as a subject, but we don't understand why it connects to us and why it matters and how it works itself out and what the implications are of it or what the implications are of not being holy. And yet, we've struggled to define it. What is holiness? What does it mean? Well, the word in Hebrew and in Greek means to be set apart, to be consecrated. Uh, Some would argue that it means to be different. That's true, but not just different for the sake of being different. The central idea around Christian and Jewish holiness is that we, it defines something that is different in relation to the world around it and in relation to God. So to be holy is to be different to the world around you and to be more like God. To be more like him in character. To be more like him in morals and ethics. To be more like him in outlook. It isn't so much that holiness is difference. It is difference in line with God's character. And that's an important distinction. Because when you remember that the God whose character we're called into alignment with is the creator and the sustainer, and the designer of life, and the designer of society, and the author of all things good, according to the epistle of James, he is the father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning, then you begin to understand that actually what holiness does, apart from anything else, and I'll look at it a little bit later on, is it brings us into the slipstream Of our maker's instructions and character. And therefore it is about more effective living. Because we are living according to his pattern. We're living according to his instructions. And we're living according to his principles. We will live better. I'm not sure that Christians have done a very good job. At celebrating holiness and discipleship because often when you ask somebody what holiness or discipleship might be, they will describe a list of things that you're not allowed to do. To be holy is not to drink. It's not to have sex outside of marriage. It's not to dance. It's not to go on swings on a Sunday. It's not to kick a ball. It's not to swear. It's not to do this, and it's not to do that. But those are definitions which are, by their very nature, only pale shadows of what holiness really is. Because holiness isn't fundamentally defined by what we don't do, it's fundamentally defined by who we are in relationship with and who we really are. That's why in the Bible, in the New Testament, when Paul is trying to help the early church work out how to do relationships, he reminds them. That those who are Christians and those who are not Christians will run into difficulty if they get into intimate relationships with each other. His words are, you cannot mix light with darkness. He's not trying to be a killjoy. Paul is not trying to destroy people's hopes or aspirations. He's trying to remind them that there are choices that they can make that can lead them to life and choices that they can make that can lead them away from life. And he asks them to make choices that will lead them to life. One definition of holiness is this. It consists simply in doing God's will and being just what God wants us to be. I like Elizabeth Elliot's phraseology around holiness, particularly for sisters here tonight, but equally valid for men. We are women. And my plea is let me be a woman, holy through and through, asking for nothing but what God wants to give me. And receiving with both hands and with all my heart, whatever that is. There's a definition of holiness. To receive, to be all that God wants you to be. To receive all that God wants to give you to do all that God asks you and to do it with an open heart and with, receive it with open hands. That's a very different definition from the list of things that we don't do, isn't it? But of course, to receive all that God has to give you and to be all that God wants you to be and to do all that God wants you to do involves making space and room for that. And that involves saying no to some things, right? Are you with me so far? Do any of you remember the 1970s children's program? I happen to remember it. Crackerjack. It's Friday. It's five o'clock and it's... You said that with a very Belfast accent. I have to say, it's Crackerjack. Do you remember what used to happen at the end of the competition, at the end of the show? They used to have a whole series of questions... And for every question that they got wrong, they were given a cabbage. And for every question that they got right, they were given a prize. But they could only keep what they held on to. And they weren't allowed to drop anything. And the secret lay in not getting too many cabbages. Because if your hands are filled with stuff that is not a prize... And you're not allowed to drop it. You're snookered really, aren't you? Christian faith can be like that. Our lives can end up full of cabbages. Things that we are holding that we find hard to get rid of. And as a result of holding them, we haven't got space to receive what God wants to give us. That's the difference between holiness and unholiness. And it's why holiness involves saying no to some things and yes to other things. And I think that we learn about that in the life of Samson. His story is told in Judges chapter 13, 14, 15 and 16. So why don't you turn back to Judges chapter 13 for me and we'll take a look at this together. To set the context of this is important. Judges happens at the end of the conquest in Jewish history, depending on your dates. The conquest begins for some around about 1440 BC and for some around about 1240 BC, depending on how they work out their dates of the Old Testament. It ends with the death of Joshua. God has led the people of, you know your Old Testament, I'm assuming, but let me, do you want a little recap just in case you don't? Okay. So um, the Old Testament opens with the, the story of creation in Genesis 1 through to 11. Um, creation of humankind, creation of the first human family. Creation of society, creation of language, creation of culture, creation of government. The book of Genesis, the word Genesis means beginnings. And it begins with in the beginning. So it tells this powerful story of how God makes the world and how he selects people to walk with him. It also tells the story of the first entry of sin and the first fall, uh, the fall of creation. It tells the story of a flood in Genesis chapter 6 that, and God uh, almost, it's as if God starts creation again, although not quite, after the flood that is described around the person of Noah. Then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls one man called Abraham into relationship with himself so that he can create a family through whom he can display his grace to the world. Abraham in history becomes the father of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, actually. But um, God's call upon him is that he he will bless his descendants in order that they will be a blessing. He was never about blessing Israel and hating the world. In calling Abraham, God was calling a people to be his own people So that the world could see what God was like. So that the world could encounter his splendor and his beauty and his graciousness and his kindness. But Abraham and his prodigy um, uh, move away. Abraham doesn't so much. But the further away you get from Abraham, the more it feels like or looks like that they're moving away from God's purposes and plans. The rest of Abraham's story is told in Genesis chapter 12 through um, to about Genesis 37, 38, 39, somewhere around there. There are, father, there are sons born to Abraham and sons born to Abraham's sons and out of them come the people known as Israel to us today. They are named after Jacob, whose name is changed by God after an encounter with them in Genesis 32 and chapter 33. Now... And There's a time of famine where they are, and the Jewish they weren't known as Jews then, but the Hebrew people go to Egypt in order to be fed and sustained. And the book of Genesis ends with them settling in Egypt, where they, are, where they remain for 400 years. There's a 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, which I've rarely heard anybody preach on, but it's a remarkable moment in the history Of the people of God, a bit like the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, which is also about 400 years. You pick up the story in Exodus with uh, the people of Israel having grown exponentially in number and being weighed down by the oppression of the Egyptian people. They're being forced to uh, do hard labor, and more and more of them are being forced to do harder and harder work. God encounters a man called Moses. And he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their misery and I have come down to deliver them. And he calls Moses to be the leader of Israel that will take them out of Egypt and back to the promised land, which is where they left at the end of the book of Genesis. It's the same place. He brings them back. God uses Moses and he leads the people of, Egypt, of Israel out of Egypt. But as they leave Egypt, they begin to mumble and complain and groan. They enter the promised land after Moses has died under the leadership of a man called Joshua. And God has given them specific instructions as to how to take that land. They're to take it all. They're to drive out the people of the land. They are to inhabit it. But if you read um, the book of Joshua, from Joshua chapter 14 onwards, it becomes clear that they never do that. They never finish the conquest. They never finish what God has asked them to do. Instead they drift in and out of faithfulness to God. One minute they're faithful and another minute they're not. One minute they're faithful and another minute they're not. I go for an early reading of the um, Old Testament books. So I would say around about 1440, 1430, something like that. You come into the book of Judges. Joshua dies and Israel doesn't have a king. And for several hundred years, they are ruled or reigned or governed by judges. And God appoints one after another to look after them. The people are to bring their complaints to the judges and their petitions and their desires. And the judges are to oversee them. Deborah is one of those judges. Gideon is one of those judges. Samson is one of those judges. Some of them are good judges and some of them are bad judges. But in the couple of hundred years when the judges are ruling, there is something particularly important that we begin to see. Listen to um, Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Here's a repeated phrase that happens several times in Judges. I'm only going to read it from a couple of places to you. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Go to the very end of this period. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And here's what we read. So in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. The story of Ruth happens around about the same time, we think. And listen to how it begins in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this era into which Samson is born is an era when God's people are disobeying him. What's interesting is, again and again across the story, and it's still true today, when God's people turn to him, he's always ready to hear them. He won't force them. He doesn't twist their arm. But when they turn to him, he hears them. When they turn away, He lets them live with the consequences of their actions. That's what's happening to the church in the United Kingdom. God is allowing us to live with the consequences of our choices. He's not forcing us away. He's not driving us away. And he's not pushing us away. But he's saying to us, have it your own way. And the period of the judges is very like the period of History that we are in in Europe right now. The church seems to lose its way. The people of God seems to seem to forget that we are defined by God's presence. We are defined and set apart for God's purposes. We're God's people. And when we think that we can exist without Him, God simply says, Have it your own way. And our lives begin to fall apart. When the church forgets God, the church ceases to be this effective force in the earth. And becomes something that is a hindrance. Ask anybody who is being abused at the hands of the church. Anyone who's been hurt by the church. Anyone who has found themselves confused by the church. Or part of a church that had lost its way on the Bible. Or lost its way in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And is instead relying on its own strength. So when when Samson appears, we're told that it's a particular period in the history of Israel when the people of Israel were doing what was right in their own sight. So before I get to him, let me ask you a question. Are you in a period of your life where you're doing what's right in your own sight or in God's sight? You probably know the answer to that. So I'm not going to press the issue. But I do think it's important for me to ask the question. So in Judges chapter 13 verse 4, we read of an angel or an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God, appearing to a man and a woman to tell them that they're going to have a son. Verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. Remember that, because it's really important as part of this story. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Remember that, because that's an important part of the story. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that of an angel of God, most awe-inspiring. I did not ask him where he came from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, you shall conceive and bear a son. That sounds like the words that were given to Mary, by the way, doesn't it? Many years later. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth to the day of his death. That's very unusual that he was called to these sets of vows before he was born. He had no choice in the matter. And that they were lifelong is very unusual. There are only two people, I think, as far as I can read it, I might be wrong, in the Bible who are called to a lifelong commitment to the Nazarite vow. One is Samson. Do you know who the other is? John the Baptist. Who also lived as a Nazarite, as far as we can understand. So this boy is told his mother is told by God that there are certain things that he is not to do. They all come from numbers chapter six verses twenty two to twenty seven which set out the requirements of the Nazarites. Some people in the Old Testament and in the Jewish tradition were called to make these vows temporarily for a season. Some made these special vows for an occasion or a chapter in their lives so that they could focus their hearts and minds, so that they could um, get their their attention back onto God again. But very few had to live like this for their whole lives and Samson was one of them. The first thing that he wasn't allowed to do was to, he was not allowed to take wine or strong drink or grapes. That is not an indication that Christians are not permitted to drink alcohol, by the way. That is a misapplication of that text. It's not what it says. I'm not here to preach on that, but I'm just letting you know that that's not what that says. You can fall out with me later if you like, but take it up with whoever wrote Judges. It's not my fault. The reason, I think, that they weren't to have wine or strong drink or grapes, and Samson wasn't, is an issue of control. Control. He is to be self-controlled. He is to be circumspect. He is to be disciplined. He is to be focused. The second thing that he's not allowed to do, we're told, is he's not allowed to cut his hair. Why? What's that going to achieve for him? If not going near wine or strong drink or grapes... Not about the alcohol content or grapes, it was about self control. I think not cutting his hair for a Nazarite was about not being driven by external appearances, not being caught up with comparison, not trying to fit in with the culture, not trying to look like everybody else or sound like everybody else or be like everybody else. And the third thing that he wasn't allowed to do as a Nazarite was he wasn't allowed to touch anything that had died or come near anything that had died. Why? Probably because there's a message about him being an ambassador for life. Someone who stands in the life and the flow and the purposes of God. Those three things are important for Samson. And for his mother and father, as they bring him up, he's not to go near wine, strong drink, or grapes. He's not to have his hair cut, and he's not to come near any dead things. In chapter 13, verse 8 of Judges, we realize that Manoah and his wife, who um, is desperately keen to be faithful to all of this, need God's help. They want to know how they are to bring their son up. So in verse 8 we read, Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, Oh Lord, I pray, Let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we are to do concerning the boy who will be born. It Strikes me, not as a part of this Bible study, but as a comment on the text that is in front of us, those of us that are parents should pray that. Shouldn't we? Lord, teach us. What we are to do concerning the child who will be born. I wonder how many of us assume that the purpose of God for our children is that they will become a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. That God couldn't possibly have his people working in other places. That a Christian young person's life is incomplete without going to university. And yet the opposite is true. This Saturday, thousands of children across this country and their parents will go through the living nightmare of being told whether their children are gauged as successful or as not based on a number on a piece of paper. Well, I don't want to be controversial about this, but you know what I say? Bah humbug to that. Every child that is part of this church family, every child that is part of your family, part of your circle, don't wait until Saturday to celebrate. Go out and celebrate with them on Friday night. Tell them that they're loved. Buy them a big dinner. Take them to see a movie, but a good one. Tell them that you're not going to celebrate them based on the result that they get. You're celebrating because of your family and you love them. And if you are a Christian, if you are a teacher, if you are a parent, if you are a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, let this be your prayer. How are we? Teach us what we are to do concerning the child. Mary did the same thing. She assumed something about her son when she lost him in the temple. And he said to her, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Well, what is the father's business for your grandchildren? Or for your children. Anyway, that's not what this sermon is about. I could make it about that, but I'm not going to. So here we have this family, this couple, wanting to bring their child up in the ways of God. And they're people of faith. Look at verse 12 of chapter 13. They're being told that this boy's going to be born, that he's going to be a Nazarite, that he's to live in a certain way. But listen to what Manoah says in verse 12 of chapter 13. Now, when your words come true... What is to be the boy's rule of life? And what is he to do? Not if your words come true. When your words come true, what is to be the boy's way of life? What is to be his rule of life? They're people of faith. They believe that God has something for them. They have such a powerful encounter with God that in verse 22 uh, the, fa- the wife says to the husband, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. They believe God. And so Samson is born in verse 24. The woman bore a son and named him Samson. The boy grew, and the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan, between Zorah and Ishtael. So Samson enters the scene and we're told what he is to be like. He's to be circumspect. He's to be controlled. He has to be consecrated. He's to be focused. He's not to be driven by what everybody else thinks. And he's to be planted firmly in life. So when you read chapter 14, you are hit with this tsunami of a spoilt brat who is uncontrollable and treats women like objects and his parents like merchants. The story opens this way, chapter 14. Once Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw a Philistine woman. The word saw there there means um, leered at. Do you know what I mean by leered at? That leery look that people can give members of somebody that they're attracted to sexually a kind of do you know what I mean by leery it's creepy that creepy kind of look he looks and he sees this woman here then he came up and he told his father actually in Hebrew commanded his father and mother I saw a Philistine woman at Timnon now get her for me as my wife The same tone continues. His father and mother said to him, is there not a woman amongst your kin or amongst all of our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me because she pleases me. Terrible sense of I want so you get. But before you get too far in that um, understanding that text, verse four says this, but They did not realize that his father, that this was from the Lord. For he was seeking a pretext to act against the Philistines. It doesn't mean that his attitude was from the Lord. It doesn't mean that his words were from the Lord. But it does mean that God was working through this in order to do something with the enemies of the people of Israel, the Philistines. So this man's holy life, consecrated life to God, immediately doesn't look that consecrated and doesn't look that holy. What happens next is remarkable. What were the three things that a Nazarite wasn't allowed to do? Remind me. The first one was drink or go near grapes. The second one was have his hair cut. That happens at the end of the story, right? And the third was touch anything that was dead. Listen to verse 5. So Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. When he came to the vineyards of Timnah, well, what's he doing in the vineyards? Thought he wasn't supposed to be there. Suddenly a young lion roared at him and the spirit of the Lord rushed on him and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as one might tear apart a kid death but it gets worse but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done then he went down and talked with the woman and she pleased Samson after a while he returned to marry her and he returned aside to see the carcass of the lion he's right he's in a vineyard beside a dead thing and there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey Tate and Lyle. Tate and Lyle take their their thingamajig, their motto from this. He scraped it out with his hands and he went on eating as he went. I think it's a horrible picture. It makes my, it makes me feel as if it makes me feel a bit unwell. He's in a vineyard when he shouldn't be there. He kills a lion that he shouldn't kill. He goes back to it. He sees bees in it. He sticks his hands into the honey inside and he starts to stuff his face with it. The picture I have is of it running down his face and him being so uncontrollably driven. This is a picture of a man driven by desire. Get me that girl. I can kill that lion. God's spirit was on him, but he wasn't allowing the spirit necessarily to direct everything that he had to do. He was willfully misusing what God was placing in him Then he goes back to this carcass. He sticks his hands into it. He doesn't tell anybody that he's done it, of course. He has this honey out of this dead animal dripping down his face. He's like a picture of gluttony, isn't he? He's a picture of uncontrollability. And we're told in the very next verse that he comes to his mother and his father and he gives them some of it. And remember at the beginning of the story, the angel said to the mother as well as to him, don't do this. Don't touch wine, don't cut your hair, and don't go near dead things. So what Samson does is in his sin, in his uncontrollability, and in his lustfulness, his unbridledness, he impacts the life of his mother and his father. He pulls them in. And then, as you read down through this story in verse 14 and verse 18, he boasts about it. He comes up to a bunch of people and he says, I'm going to give you a riddle. See if you can get my riddle right. And if you get my riddle right, I'll give you stuff. That's the Northern Ireland version of the story. What's the riddle that he uses? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. He is not only walking away from God's purposes, And abandoning God's call. And inculcating his family and his close friends and his own choices. He's boasting about it. He's making it into a joke. And of course they find out in verse 18 what it all means. But he's worried because he doesn't want his mother and father to find out. This is a picture of an unbridled man. Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed on him and he went down to Ashkelon. He killed 30 men of the town, took their spoil and gave the festal garments to those who had explained the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So he leaves. He abandons them. He's upset. They got my riddle. They find out. And he abandons his wife. He walks away from her. Spare a thought for this woman. Because what then happens to her is she's given to somebody else. Treated like an object. Then he goes back again. I'm not putting too fine a word on it. He goes back because he wants to have sex. So in verse 1 of chapter 15, he goes back to his father-in-law and says, I want to go into my wife's room. And she says, no, you can't. And he says, why? And and the father says, because they've given her to somebody else. What kind of thing is going on in this passage? We're seeing a, a, a picture of a society that has been deeply corrupted. Don't think that that means God blesses that. That he approves of this kind of behavior. That women are to be objectified or turned into Um, lust objects for men. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible teaches that women and men are made in the image of God. Collectively, we share that image. The story ends terribly, actually. You see his willfulness and his selfishness because of everything that's happened with his wife. We read in verse 5 of chapter 15, Verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes, took some torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up the shocks, which is where the later phrase in Jewish um, idiom comes. It is the little foxes that spoil the vine, by the way. And he burned up the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. Then the Philistines asked, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken Samson's wife and given her to his companions. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father. What a story. The devastation of one man's unholiness. Like a ripple in a pond, it destroys his relationship with God. It destroys his relationship with his parents. It destroys his parents' relationship with God. It destroys his relationship with the wider community. It destroys his sense of perspective. And it destroys an innocent woman. That's what happens when we turn away from God's purposes and God's plans. Everything begins to fall apart. You've heard me say before, as lovingly as I can, but I really mean this, who you are in secret has an impact on me. Your sin impacts this church if you are part of this community of faith. There's no such thing as private unholiness. There's no such thing as private sin. It impacts me. It impacts this community. It impacts our witness. It impacts our relationships with one another. I'm not saying that to you in order to make you frightened or anxious or worried. I'm saying it to you so that you understand that the Bible takes unholiness seriously because it has an impact on the whole community. What did that girl do to deserve that? And yet her life is brutally ended. And it all goes back to Samson's selfishness. It's the beginning of his undoing. Here is a man out of control. In chapter 15, verse 15, he acts with aggression. He acts with violence. He acts with an uncontrollable temper. When, the Philistine, when, they, when he came to Lehi verse 14 The Philistines came shouting to meet him And the spirit of the Lord rushed on him That's the second time That phrase is used And the ropes that were on his arms Became like flax that, was, that had caught fire And his bones melted off his hands Then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey Another dead thing And reached down and took it And with it he killed a thousand men and Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And when he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and that place was called ramath lehi And yet in verse 18, here's a man anointed by God using methods that God doesn't ask him to use. Somebody explain this to me. Doing things that God has told him not to do and yet still being used by God. That's all about God's grace, isn't it? That's all about God's mercy. And in verse 18, Samson says to God, I am thirsty. And God gives him a drink. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I know that gracious God. How many times has God seen past your sin and mine past your willful disobedience and mine and still showered his love on us and still said my promises to you will not be broken and one minute we can be doing what God doesn't want us to do and the next minute we're saying God will you please meet me and he meets us don't you think that's remarkable does that not take your breath away he doesn't say well hold on I'm not going to meet you. You've upset me. He meets a searching heart. Step to one side with me for a moment. For a moment of um, ecclesiog- ecclesiological reflection. Big word, isn't it? Never think. Never allow yourself, sisters and brothers, to think that the methods of a man have demanded or deserve the presence of God. God meets hungry people. God reaches out to those who reach out to him. Seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you read of a church that's growing, don't assume that they're growing because they have pressed the right button. When you read of a ministry that is flourishing, don't assume that the method is anointed. God might just be showing his grace. I have been around the Christian world long enough to have seen moves of God come and go and God meet hungry people in things that are as odd as odd can be. The church immediately assumes that it mustn't be odd, it must be God. What we should assume is that God meets hungry people. He it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily always approve of the method. He told Samson not to touch a dead thing. And yet Samson lifts a dead donkey's jawbone. And we're told that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. He was holding the wrong thing. He was doing what he wasn't called to do. And yet God's Spirit still rested upon him. How can I try to help you understand that? I hope I don't upset you with what I'm about to say. I wonder if you've ever heard people saying... Don't do that, you'll frighten away the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure about that phrase. I think we have to be careful. I think we have to be sensitive. I think we have to be kind and gentle and loving. But we can't frighten the Holy Spirit. He's a bit stronger than that. His purposes and plans are sovereign in God's economy. Be careful that you don't assume that methods are blessed when actually God is simply doing what God does and reaching out to meet hungry, desperate people. Samson by this stage is out of control. Holiness is a distant memory. Being faithful to God, a distant memory. He's encountered by God, not just encountering God in chapter 15, verse 15. And yet we're told in verse 20 that he becomes a judge and he judges for 20 years. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 3 show us that this man has had power and it's gone to his head and he has lost his sense of perspective. He's sleeping with prostitutes. He's hanging about in all the wrong company. It looks like all the promises of the Nazarite are somehow distant memories. And then he meets Delilah, who wasn't created by Tom Jones And he falls in love with her. Here is a man who is driven by his passion. Not by God's purpose. You know the story. Three times Delilah tries to find out what his strength is. So that the Philistines can destroy him. In verse 6, verse 10 and verse 13. And each time he tells her a lie. She thinks she's got the truth. The Philistines rush in to try and overpower uh, Samson when he wakes up, but he hasn't got, they haven't got the truth. But every time he tells her something, he's coming closer and closer to revealing the truth. So the third time she says, oh, please tell me, please tell me. He says, okay, if you pleat all my hair back, I could maybe do that with my hair, it's getting so long. If you pleat all my hair back, then I'll lose my power. He's getting close to the truth. But of course he still has his hair. But in verse 17 he tells her the truth. So he told her his whole secret and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. He's not living like one, is he? To God from my mother's womb. If, head, if my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be like anyone else. She's found out. Change the story slightly. I wonder how many people in churches across Northern Ireland or the United Kingdom have been weakened by their willfulness and yet when they're confronted with sin say, but I'm a Christian. But everything about their Christianity has gone except the name. And they think they're strong, but they've Nothing. They've, they've been Christianized, not necessarily converted. Do you feel like that? Do you sometimes behave like that? Do I? Well, of course I'll get over this. I'm a Christian. But that's just a totem if we're not rooted in God, if we're not letting Him get a hold of us. And when He gets a hold of us, something changes. It's a terrible, terrible chapter in the Bible. Samson is defeated. But listen to what he says in verse 20, what the Bible says in chapter 16, verse 20. She wakes him up, Delilah wakes him up and says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And when he woke up from his sleep, he thought, I will go out as at other times. Do you see that? I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. The power of God had left him and he didn't realize He didn't, know, he, he didn't know the difference between carrying the power of God and not having it. God never let me be in that position. She awakens him and he thinks, well, I can do this. There's the problem. I can do this. Of course he can't. He's abandoned his promises. He's abandoned God's purposes. He's abandoned God's principles. But he still thinks that he merits God's grace and protection. But the end of the story is that God never once leaves him. But God lets him live with the consequences of his choices here. Imagine being in a position where you don't know the difference between having God resting on you and not having God resting on you. Here's a question. What difference would it make if the Holy Spirit didn't come to church on Sunday? What difference would it make if on Friday morning when the group gathers to pray here the Spirit said, I'm not going to bother this morning. Would we notice? We should notice. There's something about His eternal presence and promise that sustains us and carries us. And of course we know that God will never leave us in the sense that Samson is left abandoned here, but that doesn't mean that God will not sometimes let things happen to us as a consequence of our choices. And then we look and say, why did God do that to me? And God says, I didn't do it to you. You did that to you. He's humiliated. He's dragged out and made a mockery of. They laugh at him. They make him perform for them. In verses twenty-four and twenty-five, he's got to perform. The words are actually about him performing, like a, like some kind of chained monkey. They gouge out his eyes. The judge of Israel, the person anointed by God to lead his people, chained like a circus bear, and performing. But something happens in him because in verse 22 of chapter 16 in Samson's story here's what it says but his hair began to grow again. He may not have noticed God's absence the people around him did not notice God's returning presence. His hair began to grow again. Something was going on in this man's soul at the very depth of who he was. And we're told that in, verses 28, uh, in verse 28, we read these uh, words. He cries out to God, he prays and he says to the Lord, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, so that with this one act of revenge I may pack, pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines and he strained with all his might and the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. Remember what it was said about him before he was born by the angel of God to his mother and father? This Boy shall be the beginning of the deliverance of Israel. A life laid waste by unfaithfulness, but finished in holiness as something changes in him. And he says to God, give me the strength to be faithful to you in this moment. And it happens. I've been thinking yesterday and today what are the pillars of our society that are holding up the false gods individualism and dismissiveness of God whether you call that atheism or pluralism or idolatry I don't mind these two pillars, I'm the center of the universe, and there's no one to whom I'm accountable. They hold up all the other gods. And I wonder if God could be calling a generation of believers to put our hands on each pillar and to get ourselves in a space where we are walking with Him and say, Give us the strength to push down these pillars. In Northern Ireland culture, in British culture, in Irish culture, in European culture. What we see in Samson is someone who walks away from his call, walks away from his consecration and as a result walks away from all that God has. And yet God in his grace and mercy doesn't walk away from him. So what do we learn from all of this? How do I put all of this together for you? I think the first thing I want to say to you about the purposes of God in Samson's life and this whole sense of holiness is to bring you back to the beginning of Samson's story. His unholiness isolated him. It isolated him from God. It isolated him from himself. And it isolated him from the community that he was called to be part of. When we walk away from God's purposes We are walking into a no man's land I'm not sure that any of you have been in this position Maybe one or two of you have But on one occasion in my Christian life I considered walking away from Christian faith I shared this with somebody last week Because of circumstances in my life What stopped me? was the conviction that I was walking into no man's land and I wasn't willing to do it. I said to God, to whom else can I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I made a decision with my life that day that I wasn't walking away from faith. And I wasn't walking away from the community of God. You have a choice. You can walk toward God or you can walk away from Him. I beg you to walk toward Him. Because here's what happens when you walk toward God in holiness. You walk toward His people. You walk toward a community. You walk toward a band of sisters and brothers. None of us are perfect. We all fall. But you walk into a family, a community, even one that is flawed. Those of you that follow me on my public Facebook page will be familiar with this quote. It's on the front page on my profile picture. It's from R.C. Sproul. I beg your pardon, A.W. Tozer. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away from each other and to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Holiness is the standard that we look to, and as we look to it, we're drawn to each other. How many of you were here on Sunday night? Put your hand up if you were here on Sunday night. We had an encounter with God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the last song in this gathering on Sunday night. As we sang, what's the name of the song? And the line is, and the church of Christ was born. What's the, tell me the line in that. And the church of Christ was born and the... And the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame. As, do you sense it? As we sang that, something happened in this room. It was as if a fire was lit in our hearts and above us. And we all, many of us felt it. And we felt it and experienced it not because we were looking at each other to say am I I doing what Alan wants or am I I worshipping the way Stuart wants or am I singing in the way he wants we felt it because we were all looking to God in that moment and in that moment if we all look to God we are drawn toward each other a church committed to holiness is a church that is committed to each other by default but a church committed to legalistic holiness can be so and not committed to God because we end up saying, you're not living to my standards, so you're out. You don't fit my bill, so you're out. You're not ticking my boxes, so you're out. And in the name of unity, we breed disunity. But when we look together to God, the secondary issues become secondary in importance, and the primary issues hold us, and we come closer together. Samson's life teaches me that. His unholiness drew him away from his parents, drew him away from his community, and ultimately drew him away from God, although God remained with him. Holiness isn't about knowledge. It's not about head. It's not about being able to explain something. Holiness is about keeping our eyes fixed on God and letting the living, abiding presence of Jesus Christ remain in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens... My goodness, the world can be changed. You see, sometimes we think holiness is trying to live the way other people want us to live. I don't find that such a difficulty within the context of our wider culture. It's the church that I find that difficult with. You have to tick this box. You have to live like this. If you do this, you're not a Christian If you do this, you're not a Christian. If you live like this, you're not a Christian. I have to say, some of the old chestnuts are part of that narrative for me. Christians who judge others because they drink wine and tell them that they're not converted. You're not reading the same Bible as me. Who judge others because they go to concerts. Who judge others because they do a whole range of different things. The thing that holds us together is Christ. It's his grace and his mercy and his compassion. And when we consistently make secondary issues of primary significance in the name of unity, we are bringing disunity to the body of Christ. Max Licato said something years ago in a book, which I think is really important. If God calls somebody son or daughter, I have no right to call them anything other than brother and sister. holiness lifts our eyes oh some of your cross I have a friend who's a Mennonite Canadian Mennonite and I had a conversation with him once his name is Johnny he's a lovely fella he was a missionary in Siberia and at one point um, the Siberian mafia came and tied him up and put him in a bath and put a gun to his head He was 23 with a young child. And he thought, well, this is it then. I'm going to go to heaven. They left and he survived. I was talking to him once about his Mennonite friends and family in Canada because they were building a a centre in Siberia and the whole church came and built it in two weeks. They did a barn raising with their beards and their hats and all the rest of it, they came like, and just built it. I said, that's remarkable. He said, oh, that's not the whole story. He said, uh, you know, you, could be a, you, can be a, you can be a bearded Mennonite in Canada or a non-bearded Mennonite. And the bearded Mennonites and the non-bearded Mennonites don't talk to each other. I said, oh, right. And he said, no, you can be a bumper. You can be a wagon-bearded Mennonite or a non-wagon-bearded Mennonite. And the people that are wagon-bearded Mennonites drive wagons not cars and have beards and don't talk to anybody I said that's getting confusing <laughs> he said well you can have black bumper car Mennonites and green bumper car Mennonites and as he explained all of these different things to me, I thought this is ridiculous I read a book not so long ago about a woman that was looking for her brethren family in the north of Scotland and she went to a certain village and said I'm looking for brethren roots I think there's a brethren centre here the fishmonger the fishmonger said there, are they blue tile brethren or red tile brethren? And she said, I don't know. He said, well, they had a row years ago about the color of the roof tiles. So some of them have a blue, well, some of them meet in a blue tile building and some of them meet in a red tile building. We have to be careful that what unites us is our love of Jesus, not our conformity to one another's expectations. A superficial style of non-conformity is a pharisaical trap. The kingdom of God isn't about buttons or movies or dancing. The concern of God isn't focused on what we eat or what we drink. The call to follow is a call to a deeper level of righteousness that goes beyond externals. When piety is defined exclusively in terms of the external behaviours that we have, the whole point of the New Testament is lost. We have failed to hear Jesus' words that it is not what goes into a person's mouth that defies them, but what comes out of their mouths. We still want to make the kingdom a matter of eating and drinking. I wish I'd written that, but it wasn't me. It was R.C. Sproul and the holiness of God. But here's the challenge. I'm not suggesting that we should deal with unholiness superficially. (laughs) If we view sin superficially, then we'll view God superficially. God calls us to a higher thing. Edwin Lutzer, Erwin Lutzer suggests that we should dig foundations through repentance, but that holiness erects a structure. Repentance is the clearing away of the rubbish of the past. Holiness builds a new temple in which the Lord inhabits the earth. And Spurgeon once said, repentance and desire after holiness can never be separated. I want to live a holy life. Not to please you. Not so you tick my box and say that you like me. I don't care. I want to live a holy life to bring a smile to the face of God. I want to be so in tune with His Spirit that when He asks me to do something, I will say yes. You see, for me, five simple ideas. Holiness releases us, legalism chains us. Conformity chains us. Holiness releases us. It releases me from the expectations of a culture that want me to be like them instead of like God. Holiness redefines us because it puts God at the center of our lives. And if he's at the center of our lives, then we stop comparing ourselves to somebody else. Holiness empowers us. It enables us to live free, live wide-eyed, live with possibility, live in hope and live in trust. But holiness also anchors us. It roots us in the unmovable soil of God's grace. Because when we face challenges or difficulties, we're not trying to figure it out ourselves. We are instead saying, God in me is strong enough. And holiness makes us different. It sets us apart. It makes us look like something that the world looks at and says, how can you live with such joy amidst such sorrow? How can you live with such strength amidst such weakness? How can you live with such hope amidst such despair? And our response is a holy response. It is not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Holiness. Holiness. Is the mitt that cleans the windows of our souls so that the world might see the light of Jesus. And when they see Him in us, everything is changed. And, brothers and sisters, holiness is within our grasp. Because here's the thing could the worship group come back? I've said this to you on a number of occasions in different contexts. But it's one of those biblical principles that sits at the heart of Christian theology that we must not lose. If you are a believer tonight, if you have surrendered your life to Christ and accepted his grace and you are forgiven of your sin, then there's a bit of the story of Samson that you must not forget but is often overlooked. God never left him. He left God. God didn't leave him. What does that translate to in Christian theology? I think I'll spend the rest of my life trying to get some of you to believe this. And that's okay. Deep down in the center of Tommy McGookin, Actually, Tommy, if I'm being honest, it's more clear in you than it is in me. That's a compliment. You'll see why in a minute. Hold on to that thought. Deep down in the centre of Eileen McGookin, deep down in the centre of Jonathan Patton or Glynis Calvert or Viv Manley or Tyler Rawson or Billy, there is a space where the holiness of God inhabits. And it's as holy as heaven itself. Right now. It's not based on your externals. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on how you obey or any of that. And learning to live a holy life is practicing those things that let who you already are in Christ come out of you so that the world can see who Christ is and you know that he is there. I know that's hard to understand. And I know it's hard looking at Malcolm Duncan to believe it. And I don't mean that as if I'm being some kind of falsely pietistic human being. I find it hard to believe. Because I know me better than you know me. I know my frailties, I know my feelings, I know my habits... I know the things that are on my mind and worrying me even as I'm speaking to you tonight. And yet in the center of Malcolm Duncan, by the grace of God, Christ has come to live. And he will not walk away from me. And that holiness that he has planted in my soul will flourish and blossom and grow into every aspect of my life and he invites me to be a partner in becoming the person that he has called me to be by living in reverent and holy obedience to him so don't leave this meeting despairing don't leave it feeling as if the habits that you have can't be broken and the choices that you make don't matter the choices that you make really matter The priorities that you set really matter. You've got to make some choices about what you do with lust, what you do with money, what you do with power, what you do with relationships, what you do with alcohol, if that has been a problem in your life in the past. We've all got things that we have to make decisions about. But we've got to make those decisions based on what God wants to do in us that we might become on the outside what God has made us on the inside and may you grow in that and discover the freedom that holiness brings because in the end holiness is the only pathway to liberty and the devil will make you think that living an unholy life is the pathway to joy and freedom when all the time he is ensnaring you the only thing that can cut the chains of our culture And of peer pressure and of our own shortcomings and our own lack of self-worth and awareness of confidence is a holy life. And when God gets us in that space, those other things are cut around us.